I feel like I've spent an eternity talking about magic talk and I would like to magic talk about something else, but just, I just want to add one last addition about them uh, to recap the magic talk saga. It's now epic. It began with John Banks taking a call from a racist caller called Richard. He basically endorsed Richard's views. So he said he wasn't listening to them and he added to them that was denounced by the company MediaWorks, which owns Magic Talk, their CEO, Cam Wallace. Uh, he said that discriminatory talk like that will never be allowed at MediaWorks, that it's an inclusive place to work. And of course, people responded to that by saying, actually, your employee, Sean Plunkett, was censured by the BSA in December for an interview uh, that it said was offensive to Marty, led to Sean Plunkett leaving the station. Uh, in all of this somewhere, Peter Williams, their afternoon, their morning, sorry, host, uh, hosted a three-hour session where there was a whole bunch of anti-vax misinformation broadcast. And that brings us to a, just about today, uh, and Ellie Moore has recently written about the saga for stuff, and her piece is really interesting. It talks about some of that toxicity, but it also really defends Talkback Radio as a place where, where people's voices can be heard and which uh, can combat loneliness. Well, I agree with her. I, I absolutely agree yeah. with her, having worked on it for so long. I think it provides a good service. Yeah. One of the lines that struck me was actually that uh, for some of the people that ring in, it might be the only human voice that they talk to uh, in the course of a week. You know, people's uh, it, it can be a lifeline for people. I feel a little bit guilty, though, because her article actually quotes one of the quips that I made last week where I said, uh, Sean Plunkett's reputation as a broadcaster precedes him to the extent that he got fired for something someone else said. Now, I'd just like to clarify that because the media work statement is pretty precise about this and these statements are reasonably precisely worded. Uh, it said that Sean Plunkett has decided to leave media work. So he wasn't fired. I'd just like to make that clear in fairness. And that's possibly the last thing I'll say about Magic Talk for a while. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we've cleared that up. Well, somehow one of the biggest media discussion points in the world at the moment, Hayden, is a documentary on Britney Spears. So what's it about besides Britney? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Britney Spears, it feels like the most well-catalogued story in the world and maybe uh, not something that there'd be a huge uh, media debate over. But ne nevertheless, uh, the documentary is called uh, Framing Britney Spears. It's by the New York Times. Now, if you don't know, Britney Spears has been in a, it's called a con conservatorship. So it's, her father's basically running her life. He runs her finances and he runs her career. And there's a legal battle at the moment to overturn that. It's supported by fans and sort of the hashtag free Britney mo movement. But that's not really, the, that's what the documentary is about. But that's not the stuff that works about it. And it's not the stuff that's provoked the most discussion. The stuff that's provoked the most discussion is the clips of her treatment by the media. Why do they work so well? It's interesting. They almost work so well, almost in contrast to the rest of the documentary, because it has almost no new material. Britney Spears didn't reply to a request to participate with it. Her family also refused. So Jamie Lynn, Lynn Spears, her father, Jamie, none of them are involved. Most of the story is actually told by entertainment reporters for the New York Times itself, which is really almost one step away from interviewing your typewriter for a doco made by the New York Times. Um, but it, it still works because it employs a surprisingly simple technique, which is basically it tells Britney Spears' story chronologically. It shows, uh, it shows 
the interviews that she was subjected subjected to over her career, which led uh, from one thing to another. To anyway, I, I'll I'll tell that story, but it shows the pop star being subjected to interviews like this one. I noticed last week you had the most adorable, pretty eyes. Do you have a boyfriend? No, sir. Why not? They're mean. Boyfriends? You mean all boys? You mean I'm not mean? How about me? It depends. Gee, how old is she there? Ten. That's Ed McMahon from Star Search interviewing Britney Spears when she's ten years old, and there's canned laughter, but of course it it sounds just menacing uh, in retrospect. And so this documentary is essentially looking over some of the predatory behaviour that uh, the media subjected Britney Spears to through a modern lens, through a post-Me Too lens essentially. Uh, and there's just a lot more clips like that. They're played in order and the it almost takes a tone of like a prosecutor in court, meticulously building this case against the media for its hand in what we know, what we remember is uh, Spears' public unravelling in 2007 and 2008. And it just basically calls into question how much suffering and e- even death, because some people we know have died. I mean, and Cole Smith, Amy Winehouse, these people have died, uh, that the media has had a hand in with its treatment of young female celebrities. And it's a pattern that plays out with Spears and with others. You know, media organisations relentlessly pursue these young stars, and then when they start to crap, they hone in on that weakness. Not just, not just females either. Well, I think, yeah, you're probably right that it, that it also affects males, but I think nowhere near as bad, nowhere near as intense. And there's not that kind of... Um, Britney Spears was, was condemned for... <laughs> uh, she was con- she she was expected to be uh, this kind of Madonna whore dichotomy that goes on there. She was expected to be virginal and condemned whenever she took uh, agency over herself, and the, there was that kind of weird expectations that goes along with being a woman in public, and that wasn't present for people like, for instance, her boyfriend uh, Justin Timberlake. He wasn't subjected to. He was obviously there. He was doing the same sort of stuff, but he wasn't subjected to the same expectations and the same kind of moralizing. And the doco has really made people think about stars' treatment in a different light, particularly in that period, the sort of early 2000s, but even today. And other extremely iffy interviews have come under scrutiny following its release. Uh, so. I'll play one of them that has gone viral. This is an interview with Lindsay Lowen by David Letterman. Yes. And how long will you be in rehab? Uh, Three months. How many times have you been in rehab? Several. And what, what, how will this time be different? What are they rehabbing, first of all? What, what is on their list? What, what are they going to work on when you walk through the door? We didn't discuss in the, this in the pre-interview. No. But, but... Gee, that's disgraceful. It's just, uh, it was played for last of the time, and I, I'm not sure it even really created a controversy so much as it was seen as another sort of stepping stone in Lindsay Lohan's, uh, you know, meltdown. And these meltdowns, or so-called meltdowns, were treated so unkindly, and we weren't talking about people's mental health and how they're actually feeling. Uh, they they were treated for laughs, and they're treated for clicks. Uh yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, does, does the audience have any responsibility, though, that even if we don't technically like it, are we essentially being complicit in this kind of content because we consume it? 
That's the excuse that I think media companies will use. And it's something that I use myself. You know, uh, you're essentially, you're responsible for this content that we're giving you because you like it and you click on it. And I remember using this reasoning, you know, when I was at Herald to maybe serve up lower quality content because I saw it being clicked on by people. I don't think that that, <laughs> I don't think that that is uh, necessarily a fear you're responsible for the content that you host ultimately as a media company and actually if the last year has proven anything it's that this as a strategy just serving up crap essentially isn't actually a good financial strategy it's not a good media strategy and actually building a trusted brand is if anything a far more sustainable business model so yeah there's not really a lot of uh excuse for it but maybe uh we do have to examine the ways in which we are complicit in creating a kind of feedback loop here, where the media serves content that appeals to our worst instincts. Uh, we click on it, whether out of anger or secret pleasure, and then uh, it gets served up to us again. Uh, Emily Wrights has written for the spinoff about how she felt complicit in a very small way in the poor treatment afforded to Britney Spears just by sharing a gif of her interview, which is a 2003 interview with Diane Sawyer, which was pretty disgraceful as well. And I, it, it does really make you think, you know, how are we actually, how do we actually turn off this tap or how do we give the, mes the media a message that we want to turn off this tap or create a, a better environment for people or better stories uh, because of this kind of content still being served up, right? Like it's still, you still see it with Meghan Markle even today, right? Where a narrative is being created around her, it's relentlessly negative and it hones in on any weakness to the extent that she's moved country and divorced the royal family. Uh, we should probably think before we click on that kind of content about how we might be participating in people's harassment and we should possibly examine the opinions that we hold about people, whether it was Britney Spears in 2008, we said, oh, she's crazy, or Meghan Markle now, how that's mediated through a media ecosystem which actually uh, exploits people's suffering and uh, I guess profits from creating a narrative around them, a heroes and villains kind of pantomime narrative around them, which doesn't actually, uh, isn't actually true to life and can dehumanize them. It's still okay to have an opinion, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I Yeah, of course it's <laughs> okay to have an opinion. So it was a long, it's a long rant. Of course it's okay to have an opinion, but make it an, an informed one. Think about how maybe uh, your opinion about someone, whatever celebrity it is, might be mediated through these, uh, something like the Daily Mail content sharing agreement that the Herald has, where they get some of their Meghan Markle content you know do you trust that source uh do, you know think about where where your opinions are coming from all right let's uh, move on to australia our best friend uh what deals has google reached with australian media companies yeah this is kind of interesting about the future of the media google has agreed to pay deals uh with australian media companies seven west media and nine entertainment. So those are big Australian media companies and the deals are worth 30 million a year. Google will pay them in exchange for linking to their content. So, so why is this happening now? What's the backstory? So the backstory of this is that the government in Australia has been trying to find ways to make Google and Facebook in particular pay for the news content that they profit from. 
just by linking to it. Uh, these companies don't create anything of their own, and they essentially have been taking a lot of the mainstream media's advertising revenue, online advertising revenue. So the oft-quoted figure is that for every $100 spent in online advertising today, 53 goes to Google, 28 goes to Facebook, and 19 goes to everyone else. That includes all your mainstream media. And the Conservative government over in Australia wants to introduce a media bargaining code to rebalance that ledger and extract some money out of the tech giants so that their actual news media can be more sustainable. And... That has not been met well at all by Google and Facebook. They threatened to pull the plug on news entirely in Australia in response to the legislation, but a few things have forced them back to the bargaining table. For one thing, the legislation was altered to make it a little bit more palatable to them, but the other thing is that Microsoft apparently told the Australian government that it was willing to take on the mantle of being Australia's number one search engine with its uh, pretty terrible service, Bing. Uh, and that they would be willing to pay for news. So that's forced Google back to the table, and it's making these deals preemptively ahead of the legislation well, do, being passed. This must have some bearing on our media landscape, you'd think, in terms of them paying here. Yes, no. no. <laughs> yes and no. So it could do. Like, it could be a lot of people around the world are looking at this. Is, is this going to be a precedent? Just to explain the legislation the Australian government is putting in place, it just essentially forces Google and Facebook to the bargaining table to uh, create a fair pay deal for the content they create. They're just, they're just jumping the gun on that and creating uh, deals in advance of it because they're worried that the arbitration process for that will be uh, even more costly. Uh, so, I mean, he, the thing that's giving it the impetus there is this legislation, and our government hasn't proposed that legislation. So we have stuff said to Patrick Trudson today. He's uh, linked to the story about these pay deals, and he's just said in his tweet, now do New Zealand. But there's not the impetus for Google to do New Zealand because uh, there's no government legislation forcing it to pay anything and there's no stringent penalties being imposed on it if it doesn't pay for content here. So the ball really for us is in the government's court. Is it going to force Google and Facebook or try to force Google and Facebook to pay for news content like it's uh, like the Australian government has done? Do we hold our breath on that? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't really want to make predictions, but if anything... I mean, we've just had this $50 million New Zealand on air fund. Maybe the government feels like it's already done enough for the news media. It hasn't seemed aggressive in the past. Besides, even despite doing the Christchurch call, it hasn't been aggressive about really cracking down hard and forcing and really threatening Google and Facebook with legislation. Even the Christchurch call is kind of wishy-washy. Uh, the Christchurch call made after the March 15 attacks um, to crack down on... Uh, hate speech and stuff online. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't hold my breath.